0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'm going to be talking with Hans Martin Kramer and Orien Klautau about their co-edited volume, Buddhism and Modernity, Sources from 19th Century Japan, which is out from the University of Hawaii Press this year, 2021. This is a welcome new collection of 20 sources on modern Japanese Buddhism, translated and with introductions. The editors and translators have curated a diverse array of materials focusing on the struggles of Japanese Buddhism to come to terms with, to accommodate to, and to find its way in modernity from the mid 19th century into the early decades of the 20th. The book is helpfully divided into five thematic sections, sectarian reform, the nation, science and philosophy, social reform, and Japan and Asia. Each contains works by important, influential Buddhist thinkers such as Inoue Enryo, Shimoji Mokurai, and Shakusōen. Overall, Buddhism and Modernity sketches out a picture of Japanese Buddhism negotiating a new sense of nation, religion, empire, Asia, and the proper shape of society in a period in which Japan's Buddhist traditions were facing novel, complex, internal and external challenges. The book will be of interest to scholars of religion in Japan, of course, but also uh, the translator's introductions to each selection and the length of those selections as well make it suitable for classroom use. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, joining me and for coordinating the time zones here. Um, So uh, Hans-Martin Kramer and uh, Orion Klautau, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, And so we're going to be juggling a little bit with the audio going back and forth between the two of you. Uh, but I just want to open up with uh, a couple of questions about um, how you how this project came about. Uh, if you know what what was the the inspiration for doing this particular project and bringing together this team uh, working with and, and how did you select these sources?
0: Right. Uh, maybe I'll just start and Orion can, of course, jump in and correct me <laughs> and add, uh, thanks for having us first, of course.. Um, this the, the origins of this project actually are in the dim and distant past. Uh, I think it must have been around 2011 when Horin and I met up in Kyoto. Um, and we were uh, discussing sort of the state of studies on modern Japanese Buddhism, kindai bukyo, um, in the English language, and uh, realized that we were really at, a, at an interesting point in time where um, the, the pace of the, the field was picking up You know, usually Buddhist studies in in the English language on Japan would have been on the medieval period, contemporary uh, stuff, uh, perhaps a bit on the early modern, but fairly little on on modern Japan, Meiji to sort of World War II, perhaps. Um, But uh, around ten years ago, there were really many PhD students working on this, um, and um, we knew a number of them personally, especially Orion. We were thinking it was a good time to introduce. The field broadly, more not just have the monographs that were coming out, um, the PhD theses were, that were about to be finished, but to um, sort of get a sense of the state of the field, and we were thinking a good format would be to have a have a source book to actually get all those people, mostly younger people who, who were working on on all these diverse topics within modern Buddhism, to to take their sort of their their, their favorite uh, authors and uh, and translate something by them and introduce it in English. Um, so that, fr- from my point of view, that was basically the point of origin of this project.
1: Yeah, so, great. Um, or did you want to add anything to that?
2: Yeah, it also uh, reflects like a more general trend of what was going on in Japan at the time, because even in Japan, like modern Japanese Buddhism was not, you know, a real topic per se <laughs> before uh, the early 2000s. Like you do have some, uh, some research, uh, especially from the uh, 1950s and late 1950s and and 60s but the after especially 2001 2002 it you really start to see a lot of younger scholars who are now in their 50s and 60s like producing a lot of interesting stuff that actually uh managed to uh to impact how people understood buddhism in previous years because most not most of it but uh, a large part of it also dealt with historiographical issues with you know part, part of my work is also connected to that Uh, to that particular aspect, but you see more people uh, after the the impact of these early studies, you see more people from, uh, you know, from other fields like working on ancient Japanese Buddhism and medieval Japanese Buddhism, also getting uh, more and more interested in in modern Japanese Buddhism and post-Meiji Buddhism, because this is when we, all the concepts that we actually use to describe these previous years are formed and discussed and, you know, established in general.
1: Yeah, thank you. And for me, just personally, as someone who originally uh, became interested in Japan, in part through an interest in modern religion in Japan, uh, back when I was a a teenager, uh, and has since strayed very far afield and and feels a little embarrassed about that today, uh, this was a a lovely chance to sort of reacquaint myself with what's going on in the field um, and to see some of these sources. So I really, uh, I I found it a a fascinating read. Um, And that starts with the introduction, which... Uh, sets the stage for all of the individual sources and for the translators' introductions that make up the rest of the book. so I want to start by asking you two questions about the sort of mise en scène that you're doing here in the introduction um, near the outset which is uh, and I, and I should point out that the introduction is co-authored uh, by the two of you yes okay yeah um, and so the, the introduction uh, in the introduction you write, quote, Japanese Buddhists enthusiastically embraced the changes necessitated by the modern age, which they interpreted as new possibilities. So based on that passage in particular, which I think sums up a lot of interesting things that you're doing here, I wanted to ask first, um, what was the state of Buddhism in Japan entering the mid-19th century? And then what kinds of changes were required or desired uh, and and sort of came about in the early decades of Japan's modernity um, to Buddhism itself? Then the second question I want to ask here is: um, You also write that Japanese Buddhism, as we know it today, was formed in this era of tremendous change. And for those of us, you know, as we're less familiar with Japanese Buddhism in particular, uh, what does that mean? Uh, both that it was formed in this era, and sort of what does Japanese Buddhism mean in that sense? Uh, what are the features of contemporary Japanese Buddhism that form in this crucible of the sort of changes of early uh, the early engagement with modernity? And then how would you summarize um, the the five major issues that that Japanese Buddhism has had to navigate and which you lay out in your
2: introduction? Okay, so I'll take the first one. What was the state of Buddhism in Japan entering the mid-19th century? Uh, I think the answer to that is connected to the broader issue of Tokugawa international relations. Uh, As you can actually find in most Japanese history manuals today, the early Tokugawa rulers decided to place very strict regulations on foreign trade and relations. Uh, That's the policy uh, historiography for most of the 20th century referred to as sakoku, though this is obviously a term that didn't exist uh, yet in the early 17th century. So part of this policy of strict control on foreign relations included expelling uh, from Japanese territory, all Christian missionaries, and then also uh, banished the very practice of Christianity. At the same time, uh, the bakufu was taking that kind of action in terms of foreign relations. They were also seeking to regulate uh, Buddhist institutions by organizing the temples of each sect as branch temples of one single uh, head temple. So each Buddhist school uh, would have a head temple or a honzan uh, to which all other temples would respond, and that head temple in turn would respond to whoever bakfu people were in charge. This was actually more or less already in place in certain Buddhist schools, uh, but the bakfu decided to make the structure a bit clearer. So what is important for us here is that from the early to mid-17th century, all people in Japan were required to affiliate uh, with a local temple, which would issue a certificate saying that we're not Christian, uh, nor members of any other group deemed particularly uh, problematic or heretic by the bakfu. In return, uh, these people became parishioners and supported the temple financially and so on. So what you have from around the mid-17th century is the development of a structure that made anti-Christianity one of the very reasons uh, for Buddhism to exist the way it did. And Buddhists did internalize this to an extent that you can see anti-Christian treatises being produced all over the Edo period and even into the Meiji period. Uh, And this is even though, uh, despite the fact that Christianity was now nothing but a virtual enemy, there were no actual Christians in Japan. We have a whole Kakure Christian tradition, but this is not something that people actually uh, came in contact with. Uh, So what changes in the mid-19th century, though, is that this virtual enemy uh, now becomes more and more real. From the 1820s in special, uh, incidents with ships from Western nations become more frequent in Japan. And from the 1850s, even before the impact of Perry's arrival, you already have a number of books on religion published by Christian missionaries in China circulating in Japan. So by the mid-19th century, you have the Buddhist clergy with a very strong sense that they exist very much in order to keep Christianity away from Japan. And on the other hand, you have a new wave of uh, Christian missionaries trying to actually gain entry into the country. So this is more or less the situation of Buddhist of not of Buddhism in general by the time uh, that our book actually starts.
0: Right. In terms of, um, as you put it, what kinds of changes were required in this period uh, of Buddhism? Let me f- perhaps first point out that. The, our perspective is less that of what was sort of objectively required. Perhaps um, we're not we're not writing from a stakeholder's position of Buddhism, um, but um, we're really focusing on what uh, the people at the time, the historical actors, thought was necessary. And of course, that's what we introduce in the book. So, just to clarify our our basic perspective here. Um, And I think one thing that's important, another point that's important to emphasize is um, because you also quoted some passage uh, from our introduction that said that, by and large, Japanese Buddhists were ready to embrace uh, new uh, things, reforms, uh, innovations, changes. Uh, I think what's important is that we we adopt to some degree in our introduction a global uh, comparative perspective here. and in that perspective, you see that religions around the world were faced by similar challenges of modernity and uh, they reacted quite differently. And within that spectrum of reactions, I think what you can see in Japanese Buddhism is that, um, in fact, by and large, many Japanese Buddhists were, were ready to, to, uh, to face these challenges and, and react to them and not uh, try to you know, steer away, uh, have some conservative reactionary. Um, uh, stands towards them, so that's that's in, in a comparative perspective. That's actually interesting to see. Um, so the, the challenges that we're talking about, of course, um, are the the challenges uh, posed to religion by modernity. What you could abstractly call new modes of secularity, which basically means that there is uh, a new mainstream within a society uh, of a, of that basically uh, evolves around a secularist outlook. Um, religion is no longer naturally a part of everyday life, the makeup of society, the political order, but it has to explain itself. It has to it has to sort of explicitly make make a stand uh, towards other social spheres that now become more distinct, such as politics. But you could also say art, science, uh, which it was intricately interwoven with in the pre-modern period, and um, now it's, this is no longer self-explanatory. Um, And in Japan, perhaps one of the most uh, conspicuous uh, expressions of this is the the new term, the new concept of religion that now suddenly emerges and becomes extremely relevant for the the stakeholders, for for the Buddhist priests in our um, uh, case. They have to somehow uh, all of a sudden define themselves vis-a-vis this this strange thing, religion. Are they a a religion? Is Buddhism a religion? Uh, If yes, what, what does this entail? what is not a religion? And so you get this uh, strange situation that the, the state is grappling with this term religion. It's, it's policing religions and the, the religions themselves have to sort of try and see how they fit into this scheme. Um, and this is one of the, one of the core crystallizations you could say of dealing with these new modes of secularity um, that sort of on, on both sides on, on, on the secular the secular realms and, and, and the religious realm itself, you have all these new configurations, that um, intellectuals and and sort of actors, activists on on the Buddhist side have to deal with now.
1: Yeah. uh, I wanted to uh, cover cover that uh, last little thing that I asked, which is about those sort of five major issues as well. And the reason I want to make sure that we talk about that now is because uh, you actually divide the book based on those five sections, right? So there's sectarian reform, the nation, science and philosophy, social reform, and then Japan and Asia. Um, so, if we could just make sure that we uh, cover those before we move on, that'd be great.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. And this is basically how we, um, how we try to render the, the, the sort of abstract observations that I've just uh, put into words more concrete uh, for, the, for the purposes of the volume. Uh, so, I'm happy you mentioned it. Um, and indeed, uh, perhaps the most obvious reaction on the side of Buddhists was sectarian reform, which is why we put it up front in the first chapter. Because uh, I think that the first need that was felt by um, representatives of the establishment was to do something with their own organization, to uh, reform their own organization um, in terms of let's uh, let's think about the the precepts, uh, right, the rules for for priestly life, um, but also um, things like the borders of the sects, cooperation between the sects. and, of course, down to things that, that touched the substance of what these Buddhist sects were about, rituals, uh, rites, uh, perhaps even doctrines. So all of this was uh, in flux and very much debated, certainly, and also uh, in, in some schools more than in some others, reformed. So sectarian reform was at the forefront, you could say, I think for, for many of the people that uh, we, we put, picked up as authors of the original texts, the second part, as you mentioned, is uh, entitled The Nation, and it's another very important um, point uh, of reference for these authors. Um, in, in a way, they, they had all been uh, uh, tied up intimately, as Orion briefly summarized, with The Nation, as it were, in the early modern period, um, uh, through through this, this system of... Um, Uh, where, you know, uh, people were were checked whether they were Christians or not and basically had to register with Buddhist temples. So so it was intimately tied up with the nation. This is severed uh, in the 1860s, 70s. So the whole relationship to the nation becomes, uh, all of a sudden, becomes much more fragile and unclear and uncertain, and they have to renegotiate. And um, most of the authors are pretty clear that they want to be on the side of the nation, right? Uh, They they sort of uh, want to, they have this phantom pain, they want to come back to this old, nice, cozy relationship in a way, um, or at least some reformed version of that. So many authors uh, are pretty clear that, yes, this is, our Buddhism is something, it's really good for the nation, and the nation actually needs us. So it's a really, it's a very affirmative stance uh, in most of, in this period at least, and certainly uh, in most of mainstream Buddhism. Um, we kind of move away a bit from these uh, political uh, aspects in section three on science and philosophy, where another aspect of this new secularist modernity uh, and another challenge is faced by the authors we, we uh, took up, and that is the relationship to science, which uh, in that period could mean natural sciences, but could also mean the, the hum- humanist humanistic sciences, um, um, so it's more the, the Japanese idea of Gaku or Gakumon, which can encompass both um, and also encompasses philosophy because the challenge that was felt was, of course, by the natural sciences, which meant that, uh, you know, uh, say the, the, the work astronomical, uh, cosmological worldviews uh, were now no longer set by scripture, but by observation and so on. But also the historical sciences in particular, of course, meant that. Uh, especially revelatory religion, uh, but also you know legends about the life of the Buddha and so on were now all of a sudden uh, subjected to to historiography, and other standards were now suddenly valid for, for those kinds of stories. So um, this th- these challenges uh, seen coming from the science were really uh, um, thought of as coming from, from various uh, sub sub sciences here. Um, and again, taken up very um, explicitly by many of these Buddhist authors, seen from very early on. So the, the fir- first writings on Darwin, Darwinism were actually by Buddhist authors in Japan. Uh, it's quite interesting to see. Um, we then have a chapter that's uh, perhaps a bit unusual. Was sort of it was not in the original chapter plan, I think, which is on social reform. So uh, we felt it was important uh, as a as a as topic that's a bit less conspicuous, especially in the English language scholarship on modern Japanese Buddhism, um, perhaps not so much in the, in the Japanese language scholarship, which is uh, a social reform broadly conceived. Um, because that was actually uh, an, an area of activities that's very conspicuous if you look at what's happening in the 1880s, 1890s, especially with all the Buddhist schools that were founded, hospitals, all sorts of uh, institutions of social reform and so on, and we also um, included chapters on Buddhist marriage, um, views of, of women, education of girls in this, in this chapter. So I think that's a very interesting chapter. And the, other, the last chapter that's also a bit unusual, uh, Japan and Asia reflects um, a lot of the, the scholarship that was simply going on. So we knew that we would have a number of authors that could speak on this, on this topic. And we thought it would be very good to include how Japanese Buddhists reach out, reached out to the continent uh, to other parts of Asia, um, of course, uh, you immediately, uh, you, you think of also the cooperation with, with Japanese imperialism, uh, even from an early stage onwards, where uh, Japanese priests of the company troops uh, to the continent, um, or you could even see the proselytization efforts by Japanese, some of the Japanese sects as part of reaching out to the continent more broadly in economic and political military terms. So this is uh, this is some of the issues we dealt with in the in the last part. Um, I think Orion wanted to say something about uh, how all of this plays out up to the contemporary uh, present period.
2: Is that right? So one of the questions I think Nathan also asked us uh, was like, what are some of the features of contemporary Japanese Buddhism that actually formed around this time? And I'd like to uh, mention uh, one of the I think most people that especially who are coming from other Asian nations to Japan uh, find one to be one of the most characteristic uh, features of Japanese Buddhism, which is the issue of clerical marriage in Japanese Buddhist schools. I think uh, Richard Jaffe mentions in his 2001 book that today approximately 90% of the Buddhist clergy are married and that, for instance, in the case of Soto Zen, about 80% uh, of the priests inherit their temples from a family member. So most Japanese Buddhist temples are now inhabited by married Buddhist clerics and their families. And also, uh, according to Jaffe in the same book, clerical marriage has become so entrenched in Japanese life that about 73% of parishioners would rather actually have a married cleric serving as their abbot. Um, The fact that most Japanese Buddhist priests are able to marry and have children, something that Buddhists in other Asian nations, again, such as China, and Thailand usually find very odd, but at the same time, it's something that you find as you know one of the basic characteristics of Japanese Buddhism in any, you know, uh, introduction to, to the topic that you find. This, actually, this particular aspect of clerical marriage was very much a product of the modernization process uh, of Buddhism in Japan uh, with the decriminalization of clerical marriage in, 18, in 1872. You can see more about like how precept-oriented Buddhists dealt with this issue in the chapter by Mike Auerbach, uh, in the source book.
1: Yeah, and it, it is a fascinating thing about Japanese Buddhism, especially when you consider that might make actually the rates of clerical marriage higher than the rates of marriage for the population at large these days. Um I didn't actually check that, but the, the way that the media portrays the you know young men and young women not getting married, it almost, it certainly feels like uh, there are more Buddhist priests who are married as a percentage. Um, so yeah, so let's uh, jump into uh, each of the sections. So I, I took the liberty of uh, choosing one piece from each of the five sections, which represent those uh, five big categories, again, sectarian reform, the nation, science and philosophy, social reform, and then Japan and Asia. Uh, there are a total of 20 chapters. Uh, and as much as we have uh, dedicated listeners, uh, we thought that if it was longer than war and peace, uh, they might not listen to the whole thing. Uh, it would be an audiobook rather than a podcast. So we're just going to focus on five chapters um, that I personally found very interesting, but I think also uh, represent uh, the sort of zeitgeist of each of these themes that you've chosen. So the first one of these uh, from that first section on sectarian reform is chapter two, uh, an 1889 piece by Nakanishi Ushiro called On Religious Revolution. Um, as is pointed out uh, in the translator's introduction, Nakanishi was an influential writer. So it's important that he's calling for reform, I think, and making a distinction between new and old Buddhism. So can you tell us who Nakanishi is and what's significant about this election here?
2: So uh, Nakanishi was not actually born into a Buddhist family, uh, but actually uh, into a Bushi household in Kumamoto. He was born in uh, 1859, and during his younger years, he studied, of course, you know, the Chinese classics. His father was a teacher of Chinese classics. And, uh, but he studied not only that, but also English and Christianity. We're not really sure where exactly, but we do know that after a while like he went to uh, Doshisha, uh, which you know in the end became Doshisha University, uh, which is also like as you know, a Christian institution. into we don't again we don't really know exactly when but into his late 20s he seems to have gotten more and more interested in Buddhism and in 1887 he finishes uh, this the, the work uh, on, on, on religious revolution which is partly translated in the source book. In this work, Nakanisho claimed that Buddhism, as it existed in Japan at the time, should, quote-unquote, evolve uh, to transform into its ideal form. Uh, In his words, that old Buddhism should transform into new Buddhism. What is interesting about his work is that he dedicates a whole chapter uh, to discuss the 16th century European reformation started by uh, the likes of Luther, uh, and he claims that Japanese Buddhism needed to actually learn from that and actually experience uh, a similar process in order to become what it should become. As for the selection translated in the source book, which chose precisely a passage where Nakanishi explains this dichotomy between old and new and the tale. This rhetoric of old Buddhism that needs to evolve into a new Buddhism will have quite an impact at the time and will influence a whole generation of younger Buddhists Will actually go on to develop their own associations, like, for instance, the fraternity of new Buddhists, uh, which is also dealt with in the source book and the chapter by uh, Jolly and Thomas.
0: Yeah, let me perhaps add just briefly that um, I think the, especially this Nakanishi chapter is also relevant because it shows how some of the core concepts were negotiated and how important Christianity was as. Um, you know something that they felt they needed themselves to set apart from uh, the Japanese Buddhists uh, but they also at the same time uh, negotiated with it they, I hesitate to say made borrowings from it because that doesn't quite do it justice but for example Nakanishi does talk about the centrality of faith Shinko which is as such the term is not necessarily a central you know traditional Buddhist Buddhist term but it's something that comes becomes more central in the deep religious more overall religious debate in the 19th century. So it certainly somehow the, the dialogue in the broad sense with Christianity leads to that becoming central. But then Nakanishi does uh, quote Buddhist scripture to make sense of the term. So it's, a, it's an attempt to, to um, sort of answer to the Christian challenge, to the missionaries' challenge in Japan. But uh, it's, it's a complex uh, negotiation process that's going on there on, on, the, on the conceptual level.
1: Yeah, I did. I, this was one of the things that I really enjoyed about this particular selection. Right. The, the sense that there's not a, a sort of Buddhist reformation in the sense of the Protestant Reformation, but that same sense of sort of crisis uh, and then the emergence of this new understanding of and importance of the idea of faith as well. I think it really nicely speaks to the kinds of you know, dramatic transformations uh, of Buddhism in uh, this era. Uh, And that actually, uh, it's the same 1880s uh, that gives us our second selection, uh, which is from part two of the book, uh, On the Nation. Um, Here I'd like to discuss chapter five uh, on the national doctrine of greater Japan, uh, which is from 1882 by Shaku Unshou. So unlike Nakanishi, it seems to me he's more of a traditionalist in a sense, um, adhering to a stricter idea of monastic uh, Buddhism, monastic precepts, and coming out a little bit more strongly against Christianity, thinking of it as sort of heretical. Um, he also is, though, very deeply and actively involved in the modern myth making, connecting Buddhism and the imperial house, which he uh, seems, at least to me, to be doing s- through an appeal to a kind of prelapsarian Buddhism, right, in antiquity. Um, and so I found the contrast between these two pieces also quite interesting.
2: Yeah, so. This is actually one of the most interesting aspects about Unsho because when we think about modern Buddhism, of course, quote unquote, uh, we think, of course, of liberal, more liberal characters, like fighting feudalistic institutions and trying to create a Buddhism more appropriate for an age of like science and reason. And actually, like I'd say about 70% or 80% of the people like dealt with in the source book have more or less this perspective, right, of trying to adapt uh, Buddhism into a new age, of trying to borrow... While, like, at the same time, they are, like, heavily criticizing Christianity, they are uh, also, at the same time, borrowing all these new concepts in order to reframe Buddhism in a more, like, sympathetic light and emphasize Buddhism's uh, utility vis-a-vis estate. But in the case of Unsho, uh, he is exactly the opposite of what we think when we think, like, modern Buddhism. And actually, for example, if you go back to all the uh, the introductions to, to the history of modern Buddhism written late 50s and 60s, which I just mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, uh, what you'll find is actually, actually they're describing, uh, they, they they actually draw a lot from the same old and new dynamic. Uh, you can see, for example, they, they say that, you know, for example, the the previous, the feudalistic Buddhism, as they call, is, is the old kind of Buddhism, right? And then you have this modern Buddhism, trying to to fight this feudalistic Buddhism and the modern version of Buddhism is more social. At the same time, it's more individualistic and so on. So you you have the same um, I could say like perhaps framework that you see in works like uh, those of Nakanishi also appearing in post-war scholarship that is trying to actually uh, understand what was going on around that time. And they too understand, for example, Unsho as an example of old Buddhism, uh, the kind of old Buddhism that Nakanish is mentioning in his work. Actually, uh, it's going to be, you know, picked up by uh, by several other groups later on, and they are also going to, uh, they actually going to use Unsho as an example of what old Buddhism is, and Unsho is actually going to embrace that to an extent, right? So it's quite interesting because he is also talking in in all these same terms and the same concepts of modernity. At the same time, he's not like the character that you think of when you think, you know, quote-unquote modern. But he's trying to respond to issues, for example, like church and state, like separation of politics and religion, which is something very much, you know, modern from around this time. And this work that we uh, partly have translated here uh, from 1882, this is actually what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to take this new concept of the division between you know, the separation between politics and religion and speak of these this tradition of connection between the emperor and Buddhism and this new framework. So you can also read him as very much so as, uh, as an example of what, you know, Buddhism experienced into modernity. And although this is not very present in his work, he's also going to try to reframe, uh, for instance, the idea of Buddhist precepts into the modern context of national morality, for instance, which is something that was being heavily criticized by all this like new Buddhists, uh, you know, all these old Buddhists, they just care about precepts and not getting married and so on. And he's going to actually try to know precepts are important. Look, the nation is actually calling for you know morality and ethics and so on, and precepts can actually pay, play a, a role in that in that context. So it's it's, it's quite interesting to try to understand him uh, not as as an example of you know tradition and of old Buddhism, but as actually of something trying to reconstruct of a tradition trying to reconstruct itself.
1: Okay, uh, so I want to move on to uh, to part three. Uh, you know because we've been talking about this sort of. Uh, clash between, right, in a sense, the sort of tensions between uh, reform uh, in the sense of modernization and reform in the sense of uh, uh, sort of retooling traditions and presets and sort of how to adapt and adopt, uh, you know, new ideas and how to adapt old ideas to them, uh, to the new world. Uh, and this th- that same theme of sort of confronting, of course, the modern you know, runs throughout the whole of the book. Uh, but I did I did find uh, this uh, in science and philosophy to, to play out in quite a different and very interesting way. And that's part three. Uh, I wanted to talk about Murakami Sensho's Discourse on Buddhist uni- Unity, uh, which he wrote in 1901. I found this quite thought-provoking because he's struggling with... Uh, the problem of diverse interpretations of the canons, and the existence of multiple sects of Buddhism, right? So he's not just struggling with sort of modernity and modernization, but also problems that are very much internal to Buddhism and to, you know, quote-unquote religion, which is, of course, as Hans Martin pointed out, something also newly being struggled with. Um, So what does it mean that all of these sects claim to be, you know, the Buddhism, Uh, So Murakami is a professor at Tokyo Imperial University, which is the prestigious university, and he's a pioneer in Buddhist studies. So for me, it was fascinating that he's taking the position, and I'm quoting from the the translator uh, of this piece, that, quote, despite knowing very well that the teachings of the Mahayana did not all radiate from the mouth of the historical Buddha himself, and that the Bodhisattvas were not real beings flittering around our cosmos, he still believed in Buddhism. In fact, it made him believe even more, and I'm reminded of some of the, you know, other uh, uh, literature about this sort of Meiji moment and the sort of genesis amnesia uh, of, of modernity on the one hand, but also I think of, uh, you know, Basil Hall Chamberlain's uh, uh, writings about the the, uh, the modern emperor cult. Uh, and talking to you know, uh, Japanese associates who would say, Well, we know it's not real, but we believe anyway, right? That sort of fetishism that uh, characterizes a lot of new belief structures and so on. Um, and so, this I thought this was a really interesting piece for somebody who's struggling with those issues. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so, um, the discourse in Buddhist unit unity, like it was. Uh, originally published in 1901, but Murakami's uh, sort of quest to unify or to actually find some sort of consistency, and this is a term he uses too, like much earlier, ikkan, like consistency uh, in Buddhism, actually starts much earlier in the late 1880s. Murakami was originally born in a very small Jodo Shinshu temple in Tamba province, which an uh, area in an area that today belongs to uh, Hyogo prefecture. He studies in Kyoto for a while. And uh, tries to he actually uh, marries into this temple in in what is now like Aichi Prefecture, and things doesn't really the don't really work out, and he ends up going moving to Tokyo uh, in early 1887 to teach at uh, what is now Komazawa University at the time of Sotoshu Daigakuri. and right after he arrives in Tokyo, like he starts actually doing all these uh, public lectures on how to. Um, to use Buddhist logics, like to to counter Christianity, which was actually one of the main uh, issues at the time. This is 1887. This is the same time that you know Inoue Enyo is, is publishing his main works, his early main works, and so on. So, one of the key issues at this time is to define Buddhism as a religion better than Christianity. And it was not only a motivation for him, but to most like other Buddhists in Japan, as you can see, like in the source book, it's actually quite a a recurrent topic, right? Like, you know, you have this this whole generation of like three decades of people like trying to, in many different ways, counter and criticize Christianity to explain and to put Buddhism, uh, to depict Buddhism as a better uh, religion uh, for several different reasons. The thing is, uh, you know, when you're, discussing with Christians and trying to prove that Buddhism is a religion better than Christianity. Well, like Buddhism has no Bible, right? And the idea also was that the types of rituals performed like in 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 all these different Buddhist schools, like they were just so different amongst themselves, like, you know, let alone, like if you include also like Buddhism in other, other parts of Asia, like it gets even more discrepant. But what Murakami set himself to do is, with this understanding that he needed to have this unified whole to talk against Christians in a sense, he tries to actually find some sort of uh, consistency in Buddhism to redefine Buddhism as a unified system that, quote unquote, like made sense in the context of 1880s and 1890s Japan. And in the process of finding some sort of unifying key for Buddhism, one of the main issues he tried to respond to was the criticism that Mahayana Buddhism, like the broad group of uh, Buddhist traditions all Japanese schools belong to, was not truly preached by Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha. Due also to the impact of European buddhology, the idea that the historical Buddha had not preached the Mahayana Sutras was by this time, by the late 19th century in Japan, already more or less common sense among... uh, Buddhists, especially Buddhists among uh, Buddhists of the younger generation. And this is also like the idea that, okay, like, so your Buddhism was actually not preached. uh, The Buddhism that you that you practice, that you experience, that you live was not actually preached by the historical Buddha, by the founder of the religion. This is actually one of the main points of criticism uh, by Christians. So what Murakami tries to do, uh, his unification project is assuming he assumes that this is true, that the Buddha didn't really speak uh, the Mahayana. But he does emphasize, however, that while the Mahayana Sutras had not actually been spoken by the historical Buddha, there were historical developments of what the Buddha actually meant, and therefore equally valid in terms of Buddhism. This actually caused him a lot of trouble, uh, so much that precisely because of this work, of this Bukyotoitsun of 1901, he actually had to abandon uh, the Jodo Shinshu, the, the Oteniha, right? He had to, to kind of like return his. Priestly uh, license, like there's no uh, in Japanese, you say like so seki hakudatsu, but he wasn't actually stripped of his his rights. Actually, returned it himself, like so. But it was mainly because of the the whole uh, uh, impact and the criticism that received after publishing this work.
0: Just to add briefly, um, the the concrete passage we selected for the book and that Ryan Ward translated uh, for the volume again, emphasizes faith, right, interestingly. So the, the commonality that, uh, at least in this passage, Murakami does take, uh, that does find among the, the various diverse and heterogeneous Japanese uh, sects is, again, faith. So it's something, it's it's appropriated certainly from a, from a non-Buddhist discourse, but it's taken uh, to, to somehow now be a fundament of, of Buddhism, of Japanese Buddhism, and actually something that can unify Japanese Buddhism quite Interesting, certainly something that couldn't have been written even a few decades earlier, uh, although it does come across as a, as a purely yeah. Buddhist tract in, in, in several ways.
2: And it's also interesting to note that, um, he publishes again, I just I think I just mentioned it very briefly, but in 1890, uh, he publishes an earlier work, but he attempts something similar, it's much shorter, uh, it's titled like Bukkyo Ikando on the consistency of Buddhism. It has been uh translated into English and is. A mythic uh, uh, PhD dissertation by Kathleen Stags, like that you know, has never published, but you know has a translation of both Murakami's uh, *Bukkyoikanon* and I think of uh, part of uh, Inoue Endio's *Bukkyo Katsuron*, the Joron, right? So it it's actually quite interesting because in his earlier work he doesn't really emphasize uh, faith the same way that he will in 1901, right? And it's also interesting to regarding Murakami to 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 note that. He's this 1901 work. It's supposed to be uh, the first of a series of five works on the consistency of Buddhism. So this is actually the first one, the general overview of the topic. But he has like, uh, you know, he envisaged five works that he doesn't actually uh, get to publish. He publishes uh, three of them. He never publishes a fourth volume and uh, two years before his death. In 1929, he publishes, you know, the the two last volumes and sort of like Radcon's volume four, like to another work he had published earlier. But it, it, it's a life, uh, you know, long project that he envisaged around this time. He knew that, you know, it wasn't something that he could accomplish with just one work.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that this was a, a lifelong project, but I think you can... It, it, make, it makes sense uh, when you read it. I mean, it feels like it's part of something much uh, bigger in that sense. Um, I wanted to move on to uh, the social reform section. Uh, I found uh, Shimaji Mokurai's On the Relationship Between Man and Woman, uh, which he wrote in 1888, to be quite fascinating here. Um, as Hans Martin said in the introductory, introductory section of the, the, the podcast today, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, ways in which Buddhism is, is engaging with social reform. Uh, my, in my own research, I always working on the uh, school lunch program. I constantly come across the Buddhist school, which is reputedly the you know origins of the uh, uh, the origins of the school lunch program, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, it's a big part of the uh, social actual history, and also kind of the social imaginary, I think, of this uh, you know, turn turn of the 20th century uh, in Japan. Um, But here, uh, Shimaji Mokurai is discussing uh, education for women from the point of view of a Buddhist. And he has this very complicated, nuanced view of the the need for women's education, which I think reflects some interesting things about him as an individual, but also his milieu, his time. Um, He's attempting to negotiate between Christianity, Confucianism and Buddhism, and as he concludes, to consider the strengths and weaknesses of East and West and find a kind of middle path, right? And so he's really exemplifying so many of the things that you've talked about, uh, and that's why this particularly seemed a representative sample from this section.
0: Yes, thanks. Uh, As you said, it uh, might come across as as nuanced and complex, but it might also strike contemporary readers as contradictory, perhaps, because uh, at the same time, he's trying to advance the case of uh, girls' education. On the other hand, he's emphasizing—he's very clear about emphasizing a division of labor uh, along gender lines, very strictly, even uh, you know, a bi- biologically determined uh, division of labor. So it's—it's it, uh, it's quite it sounds contradictory, I think it will to many contemporary readers. But it's actually, as you already pointed out, it's quite representative of thoughts on women's girls' education not only in this period, the Meiji period, but basically up to World War II, perhaps even the early post-war period. If you look at um, discourses on women's girls' education, um, there are many people who who, who who are willing to advance it institutionally and say it's really important, but most of them are pretty clear, and that includes women actually, not just men talking about women, um, that there should be the actual substance taught should be different, and the men and women should be taught different things. Um, so it's it's quite pervasive in that sense. Uh, Shimaji is perhaps less representative of of Buddhism in the 1880s, but more of the the more general discourse on women's education uh, in even pre-war up to mid 20th century Japan. Um, quite interestingly. So yes, he, um, and I think that's significant in itself in, in the 1880s, that he's one of the first to say women's education must be expanded. The, the state at this point in time is very reluctant to do anything beyond elementary education for women. And it's mostly from the private sector that the so-called girls' higher schools, which is basically uh, middle education for, for women, is established in this period. It's Christians, but also Buddhists. And Shimaji himself actually founded a school, one of those girls' higher schools, uh, a private Buddhist school for, for girls. So he was he was uh, actively involved in this. He's not just theorizing about it. Um, his own positionality, of course, as you all also hinted at, is interesting because he is among the first uh, Japanese Buddhist priests to travel to Europe and actually uh, encounter Europe firsthand. And although he doesn't, uh, as far as we, we are aware of, he doesn't read uh, any European language Um uh, he is basically one of, one of the experts on, on Europe, European things, uh, among Buddhists, certainly, uh, up to this period. Uh, and this is written at a time when just now, basically, uh, the, the more serious uh, uh, travelers, Japanese Buddhist travelers to Europe emerge, and then will come back and, and bring back more, more uh, well-founded knowledge. So he's, he's one of the people who's actually studied Europe uh, a, a bit more in this period, a bit more than, than his contemporaries. So he speaks from a position of authority. Um, and as you can see, he's trying to say, it's, it's not, the, the, the issues debated here are not East-West dichotomies, but uh, the differences are sort of at a different level. And actually, in the West, in Europe as well, uh, people have the same ideas about women's education, about the division of labor. Uh, so he's saying it's not so much a question of progressive West versus Reactionary uh, East and this Reactionary East then supposedly informed by, by Buddhism, by uh, old uh, Buddhist ideas that need to be overcome. So he's arguing against that. He's saying, no, in fact, um, there are old ideas, both in East and West and uh, the, the good ideas uh, that you can find. You you'll find them both in the West and in the East, and they're actually associated with Buddhism. And then he, he sort of quotes from from Scripture but he's really he's he's pretty uh, ecumenical about it. It's not really it's not a very Buddhist text in that sense. He quotes from Confucian texts, um, so he, you know he's very eclectic. Um, he he, uh, as as long as he can drive home his point, he's, he's not shy about borrowing from here and there. So although this is published in a in a Buddhist journal, um, and I think the audience would be broadly uh, Buddhist priests, laity. Um, he's, he's actually quite broad in his approach. Um, and um, his main point is less, less uh, it, it's basically defending Buddhism against, against the, the point that socially, uh, Buddhism is reactionary in some way. And he's saying, no, sort of what we need for our time, a modern division of labor for, for women and men, that's actually something that Buddhism can support. And I guess, in a way, his, his practice is social practice. His building founding schools sort of proves his point anyway even though theoretically it sounds a bit weak if you read this this excerpt here translated in our volume
2: can i add something it's also interesting to note that um he's going against the trend he's criticizing like the contemporary trend that associates uh civilization with the west right like he's it's something that you know enyod does as well like he's trying to say that you know it's things are not better in the west because it's it's he's, tr- he's trying to disconnect both things right to tr- try to say that you know Japan can be a civilized and so on can, martin can you sorry maybe. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: actually I, I would i would uh, put it a bit differently he's, he's disassociating uh civilization from christianity because the argument that of course yeah, is right, in, right. in this period is that christian missionaries will say if you don't convert uh, you'll, you'll stay barbaric because look at European civilization, North American civilization, it's all based on Christianity. So Shimaji from very early on, even in, in the 18, early 1870s, he writes, uh, literally he says that uh, even three-year-old children, when he comes back from Europe, even three-year-old children know that European civilization is not based on Jesus, it's based on Greece and Rome. So this is a point that, that he picks up very early uh, and he's trying to, to uh, bring, bring home very forcefully.
1: Well, that's it. That's very interesting. I did not know that about him. And I think it does change a little bit of the way I would read him. Uh, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so I want to move on to uh, one last uh, selection from the uh, volume. And that is the section on Japan and Asia. Uh, I want to look at the Japanese people's spirit. Uh, This is a text originally written in 1912 by a Zen priest named Chak Soen, Uh, and that makes it the uh, sort of newest, the youngest, if you will, of the texts we're uh, talking about today. And I think that's important because um, Soen is kind of, I mean, I guess maybe this is an uncharitable reading this time, uh, but he's acting as an apologist for Japanese expansionism in Manchuria. Uh, I'm not sure how to sugarcoat that. Uh, And he's doing this as a guest of the almighty Southern Manchurian or South Manchurian Railroad, uh, which we know as Mantetsu. Um, So this is the record of a lecture which he gave in Busan. uh, And it's full of what the translator, much more charitably than I have, calls questionable rhetoric. Uh, And this is, I think, significant uh, because, you know, you have a Zen priest and Mantetsu making sort of questionable bedfellows, if you will, but also because Sōen was a, uh, a predecessor to, for example, D.T. Suzuki in popularizing Zen for Western audiences. Um, so the, uh, the the section you know that, that's translated here uh, starts with a call for three minutes of silent meditation, uh, and I'd love if you could just sort of pick up your analysis uh, from there.
0: Well, I would first of all let me let me say that I would agree that it's very difficult to sugarcoat uh, what's happening here. And perhaps one of the most significant aspects of this is that this is from 1912. I mean, in many many respects, it reads like it could be from the 1930s. And, of course, we we know very well about all the Zen at war uh, stuff that Brian Victoria sort of introduced to to English language readership uh, a while ago. Um, So we know about the sort of the excesses, how, how Zen priests and the clergy went along with Japanese imperialism in the 1930s and early 40s. But it's a bit... It's a bit perhaps surprising to some readers to read this from 1912, where it's already pretty straightforward in many respects, as you said, difficult to sugarcoat. Um, I think, and and, I'm, I'm, uh, and it, uh, one needs to add that uh, it's very significant that this is Shaku Soe. He's at this point in time already very, I think, pretty famous among Japanese Buddhist priests, probably one of the most famous. He was... Uh, uh, what three decades earlier? He was he was in in the U.S. for the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, uh, one of the Japanese representatives, and so he's he's comes he's a very uh, authoritative spokesperson for Japanese Buddhism. Um, but I think what what one probably needs to keep in mind is is the audience or the particular um, uh, you know place and uh, opportunity that that this. This text comes about. It's a, it's a speech, it's a lecture, it's a public lecture, given as you said in Manchuria, the audience uh, is apparently school children, perhaps employees of the South Manchurian Railway Company, so uh, it's more also like, a, like a general populist audience. Uh, Shaksuen doesn't uh, speak so much perhaps as a, as a Zen priest, although he does also emphasize that, uh, perhaps more as a, as a public intellectual. Um, And you kind of wonder who set the topic for this talk. It's a a bit unclear whether this was sort of, uh, he was asked to uh, speak on this topic or whether he picked it himself. He certainly willingly (laughs) engages in it and and gives a very uh, official sounding reading of the the Japanese people's spirit as the title of the talk goes. Um, It's very affirmative of Shinto. He talks a lot about kami, very respectfully quotes from the Kojiki. Um, so um, some of this, as I said, it's a bit perhaps surprising to read this in 1912, um, and uh, much of it is is um, also a bit a bit boilerplate, uh, I guess, <laughs> self-orientalism. Uh, you know, he talks about Bushido um, and uh, how how that is. Re- Connected to to the the spirit of the Japanese people, um, he talks about as our translator notes in a, in a footnote. He talks about the the Japanese people in racialized terms. He talks about minzoku yamato minzoku, um, uh, and of course he picks up bushido partly because he then can connect it back to Zen. So the, you know, if if he talks about all this Shinto stuff, quotes the Kojiku, What does all of this have to do with Zen? This is one way to connect it, of course, through the idea that. Supposedly, the Japanese spirit of his contemporary time is marked by Bushido, which is a historical force, and that is shaped by Zen. So, as I said, it's pretty much boilerplate in in a way, I think, already by by 1912. Um, Something that, you know, Nitobe Inazo in his Bushido book has put forth and has made quite a splash abroad uh, in the English language sphere, as well as at home in Japan. Um, the other thing he does, um, of course, uh, not of course. The other thing he does is that he, he does talk about Zen in, a, in somewhat abstract terms more at the beginning, and it's a bit difficult to see how this connects actually to the rest of the, the of his argument. Uh, and he, he does um, define Zen as the mind, uh, pretty pretty ab- abstractly. Um, it sort of tries to to uh, to to um, separate the Zen from, well, establish it as, as an idea and separate it from, from practice uh, to some degree. And that uh, does prefigure uh, D.T. Suzuki, I guess, in many ways. It sounds quite a bit like Suzuki style Zen uh, in many passages. Of course, Shak Soen was uh, Suzuki's teacher and they, they had a very close relationship. Suzuki translated many of his texts into English. Um, you can see in many passages how, how close they were. And you can I think you can see Jacques Suen's contribution to the emergence of this 20th century idea of Zen that then became so successful in the West uh, in this text. So it's interesting for that as well, uh, beyond the specific context here in Manchuria.
1: Yeah, and again, I mean, i, I the, the thing I was sort of queuing on is precisely that, right? That you have this, direct lineage to DT Suzuki and the popularization of Zen, uh, you know, outside of Japan, particularly in the West, uh, which is stands in a sort of interesting contrast, I think is, again, let's try to use charitable language here to the sort of openly, uh, uh, you know, expansionist, imperialist sort of, uh, uh, connotations and I think denotations in, Uh, what's in the speech here. And so I think, you know, and again, uh, this is uh, precisely why it's interesting as a part of the book for me is that it really does show the struggles uh, with modernity and modernization, right? And you can't sidestep imperialism in that. You can't sidestep the expansionism. So in that sense, I think it's a really interesting way that brings us into the 20th century with, uh, uh, in a sort of tantalizing way, I hope for our listeners as well, uh, who I'm obviously encouraging to uh, read you know, the, the more of the sources, because as wonderful as our conversation was today, uh, it doesn't do justice to the fact that there are actually 20 sources. Uh, and so I hope that people will engage with all of them. Um, but we are reaching that point in the podcast where uh, I start to ask you if you want to uh, plug your social media accounts, uh, it, oh, the wrong podcast, uh, where I start to ask you what you're uh, what you're working on these days. Um, so I, you know, Hans Martin, are, are, uh, you know, after a big project like this, uh, what, are, what are you working on these days?
0: Well, after having spent quite some time on the question of modernization of Buddhism in Japan and uh, also have a monograph on Shimaji Mokurai, whom we talked about, um, I kind of um, switched back and switched in a way to the the reverse view, i.e. the reception of Japanese Buddhism in Europe. So I've been looking a bit at um, the early stage so that the pre-Zen boom stage of the Japanese reception uh, of the European reception, Western reception of Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, um, focusing on the very earliest uh, stratum of this, the 1870s, 1880s, um, which is uh, where Zen was not really popular at all. People were looking more at Pure Land Buddhism. Jodo Shinshu priests were quite active in reaching out to Europe, uh, publishing in English, French, on Japanese Buddhism. And this was actually quoted then by, say, European scholars of religion. So the image of Japanese Buddhism Up to, say, around 1900 was actually colored It's one of the findings of this project um, that that I'm working on, sort of finishing up on right now, Uh, more by Jodo Shinshu and a bit Shingon than, than the later Zen. There are also other topics such as the faith in Amida. This is a thing that's associated much more with Japanese Buddhism in the West up to
1: that point. Hmm, fascinating, thank you, um, or How about you? What are you What are you doing these days? I'm
2: working on two like more or less parallel projects. Like one is on actually has to do a little bit with Nakayoshi Shiro. He's one of the characters of this study. Uh, is on how uh, this idea of the European Reformation uh, impacted, you know, Japanese Buddhists. How they spoke of uh, the European Reformation. How they had that as a model um for a while and then how they kind of like overcame it like so it's 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 a it's a project that starts like in the 1880s even before Nakanishi shushiro uh made this connection you know of, of between the the european reformation and and uh uh and this new this new kind of buddhism that you know was expected to to appear in japan uh you already had people like saying Pretty much the same thing, like Tabatake Doryu, and you know, uh, similar characters, and that goes on all the way like into the late Meiji years. Like, so I'm trying to sort of like make sense of, of the European Reformation as a trope, how that functioned uh, to uh, in the formation of modern Japanese Buddhism. And the other project I'm working on is uh, how the image of Taishi uh developed in the modern period, like especially. Uh, during the, the 50s and 60s is something that not too many people have looked at yet. So it's a more uh, post-war focused project.
1: Well, those all sound like uh, very interesting projects. And it sounds like I uh, might have the chance to have uh, one or both of you back on the podcast at some point, maybe not together. Uh, but uh, I do want to uh, thank you for a uh, really uh, fascinating conversation today uh, and for taking the time Uh, to talk with us uh, about the book. Uh, And uh, yeah, I want to just encourage, again, our audience uh, to uh, take a look. Thank you both.
0: Thank you, Nathan.
1: Thank you.